Welcome to the Business of Wrestling podcast, powered by Wrestling IQ. My name is Jeff Marsh. You might know me as the Wrestling Coach on YouTube or Facebook. With 35 years in the sport, I've been blessed to get to know some of the most innovative individuals in the wrestling niche. This podcast is going to give you direct access to their ideas, their innovations, and their passions. Because as I've helped build programs over the last 13 years, it's become very clear there's a deep need for support for coaches, parents, club administrators, and club directors who are working hard to build wrestling in their communities. As always, thanks for learning, and let's break this down. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Business of Wrestling podcast hosted by Wrestling IQ. Today, our guest is, as I said earlier, Mike Powell, acclaimed coach at Oak Park River Forest, as well as now executive director at Beat Street Chicago, who for the last five years, five years, Mike? About five, yeah has been building wrestling across the city of Chicago itself. So in my mind, I like to think of what Mike's done is he piloted the model for success at Oak Park, and now he is scaling that across the city of Chicago in a super impactful way, helping a lot of kids that otherwise wouldn't have some opportunities. And we'll get into that a little bit later on in the podcast. So Mike, welcome. Good to be here, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the situation in Oak Park when you came back from college, you're full of piss and vinegar? And uh, you're coming back and you're like, we're going we're gonna to make this thing a powerhouse. What was the situation? What did the program look like? And what were kind of some of the first things that you saw need to be adjusted to reach your vision? I think I was full of hubris. It's probably a better description. <laughs> and a little bit of pandemic. But, you know, I was, I came in and thought I was going to like touch a bunch of kids and they were going to become state champs. And I remember we went to the Conan tournament, which was a big deal. My first year out of, you know, coaching, I was like, oh, we're going to win like 10 weights. You know, I think there was 13 weight classes then. And we lost every match first round. The kid that ended up being a state finalist that year, who I did doubles with all year, he was 500 the year before. We had, it's, he's a great story, Chris Henry. And, and he like upset his way to the state finals. It was, so it was, the year was great, but it, we lost every match. And we got pinned in the first period in, you know, 10 of the 13 matches. So it was eye opening. So we, we, we had a long way to go. I, I coached under a man who was a, he was old school. He was very hard. He was an Irish Catholic, came from a Catholic school where, you know, you, it was a different world then. And so he was a little bit outdated with his style. He's very harsh, very just kind of get your A going, you know, that type of stuff all the time. And I was like, I wanted to be this positive coach. And, you know, I was going to grad school and I was learning about the positive, you know, all this stuff. And so he and I would butt heads on some of that. He, he's like a father figure to me. His name's Niall Collins. But he, he taught me the, how to run the skeleton of how to run a wrestling team. From the fundraising to the Euro coaching to, you know, if I showed up five minutes before practice or I wanted to leave early, you know, eventually he would sit me down and say, hey, Mike. I'm the first guy here. I'm the last guy to leave. I clean up. I mop the mats. I do everything. The kids have to see you. I remember those conversations. I remember I went out one night to like five in the morning and I missed it. the first round of a tournament. He didn't speak to me for like two days. And it was the worst punishment I've ever had. I mean, wouldn't acknowledge that I existed. You know, I'm like sitting next to him coaching in the corner. So there was, there was, there was a lot of like life lessons for me, you know, about adulting and being a pro and it's the same thing I'm talking to Beat the Streets coaches about now. And our staff is talking about them about now. But, you know, I learned so much from Niall and he never pulled punches. I've got a healthy ego, but I'm good at being criticized. I'm good at being told what I'm not good at. And I listened. And I think that was the biggest piece for me as a young coach was I was just humble enough to 
pretended like I wasn't listening, you know, also very prideful, too much hubris. I listened to these old guys. And then I started positioning myself. I think my favorite story to tell young coaches is my, I actually started becoming a coach because I didn't know what I was doing. I could show finishes a high crotch, but that is, that's 1%, right? 2% is the technique part. I didn't know how to run a great room. I didn't know how to motivate kids. I didn't know about accountability. I didn't know about structure. I didn't know how to, you know, so there was just, there's a ton of things there in becoming a good coach. I didn't know about the relationship. I, I, I naturally did the relationships. The kid that ended up in the state finals, he wasn't making it to school. He had a tough home life. So I started picking him up in the morning and training him. And I mean, I probably ground him and I probably overtrained him. But just that that one-on-one time was super meaningful so that when I sat in his corner, he was ready to win big matches at the end because I was there with him, you know. And so that I learned kind of on the fly. And I had, you know, Jason Kelber was my guy like that in college. So I, I, I had models. So I, I was just humble enough to learn from these guys. But I also, I was sitting at a table at that Kona tournament. It was my second year coaching. And it was a bunch of former D1 guys coaching now. And they're all complaining. My kid's this P word. You know, my kid's this. My kid's this. And I was just like, man, are these, did these dudes ever look at what they're doing? And I'm like, I'm out of here. This is super negative. They're just ripping their kids. And I went mean, and I sat down. What do you mean look at what they're doing? They were just complaining about their kids. They weren't talking about how they were going to get their kids to be good. They were complaining about what wimps they were, how dedicated they were, how they missed weight. How they, that's, that's on you. You know, and that, that, that was very, Niall Collins was very good at that. He, he taught me that the accountability part of being a coach is to not point fingers. You know, if the key, you expect the kid to own their own success, then you need to own their success too. And I look back at it, I, I beat myself up for state champions. We, we didn't win. You know, this guy didn't. Ellis Coleman never won the state championship. That's on this guy, not on Ellis. You know, so, and it always has been. It eats me up. But what, one of the things that I did is I, I just left that table. I quietly walked over and I sat down with Keith Healy, who had won four or five state championships in a row at Providence Catholic. That Catholic. It's a master coach, he's a great dude, plain talker, really good for me. And I'm not a nuanced guy. So he's just, this is what we do. This is why we do it. But I sat down and basically said, and will you be my mentor? You know, can I call you once a month and ask you a bunch of questions? And he said, sure, kid. So I started doing that. And we went to Fargo together. And then there was another guy, Craig Falico, who took me under his wing, told me, this is what you do. This is why you don't do that. You know, and I, and then I had Steve Holland, who's an amazing man, an amazing coach. I had these three guys, plus my high school coach, you know, the guy I was coaching for. And so I had, had some really good people around me. And I just soaked up everything they did. And I was like, okay, what they're doing there, it, I can do something better than that. I mean, a lot of my competitiveness is finding out what Steve Holland's doing and figuring out how I'm going to beat Steve Holland. So I'm going to take what he's doing. I'm going to make it 10% better. And so we're going to beat them by one point. So, but that was my, that was the start of us building. The nuts and bolts is, is different. You know, I think that the, the nuts and bolts is, is to, how do you get a bunch of four-year wrestlers? We didn't have much of a kid's club. How do you get a bunch of four-year wrestlers to make them good in four years? And the answer is they have to wrestle 50 or 60 off-season matches. And so I figured that out very early. And Niall Collins is, was the architect of that. What he, because he was older, because he was a curmudgeon, he was not always connecting with the kids. So it was my job to connect the kids and find 25 kids that I could take all over the state with me to every camp. I never charge anybody for a camp. Anybody asked, I just said, can I bring my kids to it? You know, so, okay, so I'm running a room in Rockford. I'm taking 15, I'm getting a school van and taking kids out there with me. So we're, we're experiencing together, we're being together and we're starting to build community. And, you know, my, my trilogy that I've developed later in life, it, it, which is what I've always done, but it's trust, love and truth. And so you start, 
you build trust with kids, you know, you learn to love each other and then you can start really coaching them and give them the hard truths and you can tell them the things that they need to hear that they're not hearing from other adults who haven't pressed into them and who haven't built deep and meaningful relationships. And so that was the beginning of how we started to get good is just earning year round by it. And I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I know there's a big debate out there. Should kids specialize? The answer is yes. If they want to be good, they want to be well-rounded. The answer is no. And I don't think any 10 year old should specialize, but when you're 15 years old, you know, if you, if you're in the theater and you're in the chess club and you're in spoken word and you're doing wrestling, you can just expect to have a good athletic experience and that's okay. But I didn't preach that. I always challenge a kid. Why not give everything you have? And in four years, see how good you can have. And I promise you, you'll look back and you won't regret the sacrifices you made, the giving up the other sport or missing out on a family vacation or doing this. You're going to look back at this as a very, very meaningful time in your life because, you know, so selling that whole portion and creating a culture of parents and kids that were bought in, that's a big deal. So the first team I, I inherited from Nile, we had built that. And we had a, we were 17 and two, we ranked 15th or something in the state at the end of the year. We won our conference for the first time. That was 2004, 2005. We won the conference for the first time since 1988. Two years earlier, we were last in conference. We had nobody. So it goes regional, sectional, state. We had nobody qualified for the sectionals. And we lost three matches that we should have won in the third place match at the regional. Our season was over like three weeks. It was just, and that was at that point, that was when I started really working I went backpacking that summer and I had already kind of started with the off season, but I, I literally like I'm journaling in my back, you know, you're sitting there for like five days by myself, not talking to anybody. I'm going half crazy, but I'm sitting there journaling. I'm like, I, either I'm going to be good at this and our teams are going to start winning or I'm going to get out of coaching, but this is, I'm not doing this again. And so that's when I really started like, okay, what are the little things that are going to get us there? Do you think it's still possible in today's, oversaturated club world to take a team like that and in four years get them to that type of competitive level where they only have a four-year high school career and you can get them all in i mean are they going to be mark hall good no you know are they but can they be really good yes and particularly at the lightweights and upperweights the middleweights are a different animal especially since they moved the one middleweight into the upperweight but from 182 on up there's a lot of kids winning state at 195 who started as freshmen around the country and andre lee we had a kid who lost. He got third. He was a four-year starter in Illinois. He got third in the state. He was a four-year wrestler. Played football, too. He was a very happy foot. So he really only wrestled half the year. He was a great athlete. He was all in. He was part of a great program. And so he and his his counterparty, Monte Logan, got fifth. And Monte was in on the winning takedown to make the finals. And, you know, he, he got stepped over. And Andre, frankly, got screwed in the semis. He, he put the guy in his back on an inside trip and the ref didn't call it so Andre should have won but I think I counted up once I think we coached 10 kids who placed in state it was a big class Illinois it's a tough tournament who started as freshmen my first and second all-staters were both fourth in the state and they both started as freshmen one was a one was a 135 he beat he beat a two-time state champ to, to, in the blood round and so Johnson great he, he, he was down 6-1 but the guy was gassed going into the third period we picked up and we did we we call it the op tilt we do we run that 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 roll through tilt series and uh, he tilted him twice put it in overtime took him out of overtime matt returned him like 15 times it was amazing it's amazing awesome awesome 
Yeah. Here, if, if there is a coach out there listening, it doesn't matter if they're good. You know, the answer is, can they become all state? Can they become state champs in four years? Yes. With the right dedication and the right, like, you know, you need a certain level of like talent, physical talent and, and emotional talent. Right. But that's not important. You know, I had a kid named Joe Robles who, who lost the starting spot when Gabe Townsville moved in our district. We walked out as a captain on our state championship team. He's now getting his PhD. I mean, he's, you know, did Joe Robles have less of an experience than Gabe Townsville? No way. You know what I mean? He had an amazing experience. He ended up being a very good high school wrestler. He actually won a match in the state semis, team state semis for us. He was a backup at the end. But is, was, his, is his, was his experience less meaningful than Isaiah White's? No. So pressing in and dedicating yourself to somebody is more about giving to yourself. And my thing was always, you guys know the, what an exponential curve looks like. The more you give, the more you get. And it is exponential. It is not equal. It's not one-to-one. That when you go all in on something, your character is shaped, right? Your experience, that you, the depths of the experience is, is far more impactful. And so that's the idea is how do you get kids to really buy all in? And they might win. They might win, you know, but that's not why we coach. Can you go into why you coach? Yeah. Wrestling changed my life forever. Every good thing I have in my life is directly or tangentially related to my time as a wrestler, you know, my work ethic, my, my success as a coach and teacher and my, my wife, my, you know, everything is, is related to the sport and, and the things I learned from the sport. And I failed. I was, a, I was an emotional basket case. I was a hard kid to coach. And, and I was a, I can't, I feel terrible for what I put my coaches through. And, but man, did I learn a lot in my failures, successes. And I learned from these men who loved me unconditionally, despite the fact that I was a total idiot. And, uh, you know, that's why I coach. I, I got into coaching to create the experience that I had, you know, win or lose. So, and now it's, you know, everybody talks about these days. But there's something real coming out of COVID. There's something real with childhood obesity. There's something real with mental health they, and social media and the impact it's having on kids and their self-perception. So coach, because you want to improve lives, you want to give, and I shouldn't say we don't improve lives, right? I should say create an avenue for kids to improve themselves and have you know experiences that are not on a screen, that are very different and very old school and very, you know, and then, so I feel... I think I almost focused too. I know I focused too much when I was in high school. Now that I've been in Peter Streets for five years, I'm older, I have kids. We definitely focused a lot on character development, on soft and hard skill development. But I, I probably focused too much on winning. And I, I regret that. If you were to look back at that, do you think it would have been easy to not be so focused on winning as you're in a competitive environment? No, it's super hard. I look at Kale now. I think he's changing the game. And I don't know exactly what's going on there. But they wrestle free. They seem to enjoy themselves. I know they're working hard. I've never seen a Penn State guy gas. You know what I mean? But I love the mental approach of what they're doing. I don't know what exactly it is. I'm, I'm like, you know, I did everything I could to kind of figure it out and simulate it. But it, there's a lot of discipline from the coaching staff. Whatever he's doing, I think, is changing the game. And it's making it a more, a better place for for youth to develop. And, and I, you know, I, I, hopefully that'll have a ripple effect through the, you know, through the ranks, through, through college, through high school, through, you know, where we love winning, 
and we want to win. And we think a lot about it and we fight to win, but really it's about just doing things the right way, being the best human you can be, you know, the hardest worker you can be, that type of thing. And the wins come. And that's 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 where sports psychology is, right? So, and that's where we're we're moving as a higher level of sports psychology. But that's what Nick Saban is saying. You know, that's what Cal Sanderson is saying. This is the best coaches in the world right now. That's what they're saying. So that's something I think about a lot is how do we get that into the heads of people that don't really want to have that knowledge? You know, I'm, I'm talking to crazy wrestling dads and saying, hey, man, Cal is not taking his kids to Tulsa. You know, Ben Askren is not taking his kids to Tulsa. He might, like you and I just mentioned, if the kid says, dad, if I get straight A's and I do all my chores and I do this and I go and I train really hard, will you take me to Tulsa? That's a different story than dad saying, hey, do you want to go to Tulsa? Where the kid doesn't want to say no to their dad. So they have to say yes, even though they don't really want to go. And you're spending your family vacation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and not in South Carolina. You know, so just take them to the water park, man. <laughs> you know, so. I was going to ask you what you recommend they do with their kids instead of going to Tulsa, but now we know, go to the water park. <laughs> go camping, man. Do something awesome. If they're going to be good, it's got to come from them. The last thing you want is to sell your relationship with your kid over a sport. For any parent coaches that are listening, you touch base on if they're asking for it, right? They're asking to go to Tulsa. They're asking to do extra workouts. Is that something that as a coach or somebody that's training coaches now that you're constantly looking for that moment in athletes? Yeah, I think that's the idea is if you've really struck gold when it's coming from them and not from you. You know, when there's a culture in your room or your community that's being driven by kids, where kids are holding kids accountable, kids are talking to other kids about their goals. And that's a tricky thing. You know, there's a lot of work and a lot of deliberation that goes into that. And so choosing your words, you know, choosing your path and, and your priorities, it, you know, it's very easy to say the right things in the off season or when the pressure's not on and then hammer about winning when it gets close, you know, and, and, but no, we're, we're, we're here to learn. We're here to grow. We have a growth mindset. You know what I mean? We love what we do. We're grateful for the opportunities and we love each other, you know, and that, and that's it. And do we want to win? Heck yeah. You know, but that's winning. You don't win by focus on winning. You do this. So I think a lot of coaches are hearing that now, but we grew up in a, in an app where you're, you're a winner, you're a loser and you're, you know, be tough and, you know, this is, you know, all that stuff. And it just, now it's like some of that's probably necessary, but most of it needs to be with this, uh, this new wave stuff because it's, it's superior and we're seeing it in sport at the highest level be superior. And how does that translate down into the youth coach who's dedicating, you know, has a full-time job and four kids at home and is dedicating his time to be a coach. And what I would say is be very deliberate about, your kids the right things and about educating yourself and your coaches. You know, if I say the right thing to a kid at beat the streets, but that's not being reinforced across the staff. And if that's not part of our culture, that's a different story. So we're doing a lot of culture at Oak Park. We were on the same page. We, we said the same things in different ways to kids and, and different coaches connected with different kids, but it was all the same message. Be a good human, be a hard worker, dedicate everything you have, give everything, leave it all on the mat. 
Let's focus on program building a little bit, right? The infrastructure, obviously that's a main part of your responsibilities now at Beat the Streets outside of busy, which I think we can talk about last. And so as you're looking at trying to build a culture of coaches across the city that are on the same page, one, what education resources do you guys do at Beat the Streets for those coaches? What do you provide? Two, are there any other coaching resources that you can recommend for any coaches listening to the podcast that do want to just get better at, at the sports psych side of it, at the culture building side of it. Can I talk about what I did at Oak Park? Please. Yeah. And then, and then it beat the streets. So, because I think it might be resonate more with coaches that are running a, a single program at a, but at Oak Park, my, my thing was, I asked every single person that I thought could be impactful to come into our room and be a coach with us. I recruited Jeremy Powell away from another school for four years before he came and I had to get him a job in our building. And I had to pull a bunch of strings for that and I pissed off some people. But I got Jeremy Powell, who I call my secret weapon for years. And I had the guy who's beating Nick Marable in the quarterfinals of, of the Midlands and, and snapped his ankle. And he's an NAIA champion, but he was not an academic. So you, you see, he never qualified. He is an extraordinary human being. And he's unbelievable with kids, right? And he grew up hard. He's a beat the streets type story. He and I were like, but I got, I coached him. So I knew who I was getting. So I, I recruited him for four years. I did that with a hundred different guys. And 12 of them made it at the pinnacle of Oak Park Wrestling. We're the number one team in the country. We had 12, 13 guys in the room. Probably eight of them were D1 or D1 level guys. And my thing was, check your ego at the door. Find your purpose. It's going to be small. You're going to have a, a, a few guys. Right, you're going to have a few things that you're that you, it is your responsibility to kick butt at. Make sure you're in line with what we're doing, right? And then we, you know, we delegated it. These guys are checking grades. These guys are doing this, but a lot of it was just it's got to be about something bigger than you, and that's not always easy in the macho wrestling world, myself included. I have a significant ego, right? So, so, and it's easy when you're the leader. So check your ego at the door. But but they had, but they had. They had full carte blanche. I'd tell me if I was walking over by the heavyweights and I was saying, Hey, you guys think about doing this. They literally say, walk back over there and work with Isaiah, you know, <laughs> go over there. This is not your area, dude. If our guys aren't winning, you can come talk to us. So there was a lot of that. Like I gave total ownership, Kamal Bay, Jeremy Powell, coach Kamal Bay exclusively, right? Nick Nelson coached Alex Magical exclusively. When Big Pete Kowalczyk or Paul Collins was with, with us, they were coaching our heavyweights, Andre, Imante. They, we had a heavyweight practice that was separate. So I brought in guys that I really, really trusted. And I found a way to pay them. Not very much. I always promise you're not going to get rich here. What you're going to do is help us create something really special, improve lives, win a lot of wrestling matches. It's going to be freaking awesome. So there was that. I gave my stipend back every year, even when I wasn't married to my current wife, who's my breadwinner, because I knew if I didn't split my stipend, it'd be hard to get guys. But I know a bunch of high school coaches that have like one assistant in the room because their ego is too fragile to bring a Jeff Marsh in to show stuff that this guy knows he doesn't know. You know what I mean? So there's that. Then... The culture of the room, nobody ever sat in our room. Okay, if you were sitting in our room during live wrestling, somebody walked over it and helped you up. So you, you, no coaches ever sat. There are no side conversations. If there was, I broke it up immediately. When from the time we start at 3.30 to the time we finish at 5.30 or whenever Powell stops running his mouth, our coaches coached nonstop. And it's very different than even a lot of the good rooms you see where a coach is blowing the whistle, guys are standing on the side, right? We are on top of our guys, pushing them every, instructing, pulling them aside every step of the way. 
So that was a big piece of our culture. Part of getting the most out of your kids is getting the most out of that two hours. And then the other thing is you can't underestimate the quality of a room and how well a room is. You know, we, we did everything from like, we warm up as hard as we could. It was a harsh place, a park, okay? But if you couldn't flip, you were roasted in our room. And it was like, you better learn how to flip because we flip. When we go to the class, 10 out of our 14 starters are doing back layouts in front of the other teams. And that was a big piece for us. You know what I mean? So, so there, and, and it was a bunch of kids that never believed they could flip. So they got pushed into learning how to do it. So for everything from like how you warm up, you don't talk to the guy next to you. We warm up, you screw around before practice, you screw around after practice. So we did some things where we're like, okay, guys, this is just technique drill. Just focus on these positions and this thing. But then there's hard drill. So there's technique drilling in our, there was in our room and there was hard drilling in our room. Hard drilling, man, my hands are on you all the time. If, if I'm going to shoot a low single from the outside, I'm going to push you away. But I take you down hard. So we always take you down to the, my, so the first is your approach, right? So my hands are low. I do a mat check. I come from low to high, inside out, get to my hands. I move my feet. I move my hands. I set his feet or her feet now, right? I set his feet. But I use a real setup that involves heavy hands, moving my feet. I explode through my shot. There's no time on my knee. So, or, or my snap right there. So I'm hustling to my finish. So my thing was always shot, finish, shot, finish, shot, shot, finish, snap, finish, snap, finish, snap, finish. And then as I'm finishing, if, if Mike Powell and Jeff Marsh are drilling, Jeff Marsh's job is to make the last 10% of every takedown if this is a hard drill. The last 10% of every takedown, the hardest part. Because the hardest wrestling that's done in a wrestling match is done when the defensive guy is about to get taken down. That's when he dive rolls, right? That's when he switches. That's when he hits a knee and stands up before two is called. So, so there's that. Jeff Marsh is fighting me. And then my edict is hip, butt, or back. We never finish a man on his knees, a woman on his knees. We never finish a person on their knees. It's always finished on hip, butt, or back. We're always grinding our, ch our chest up to a double wrist ride or to a cross wrist. So we're finishing the right way. Then the bottom guy has to knee slide out. I'm letting him out, but he's got a knee slide out. As he knee slides out, what we call it, hands on head low. My head was low in their back. My hands are on their ribs. I'm following them. And when they turn around, I'm in their face. And so you're training kids to drill really hard, execute things when they're really tired, score in difficult situations when they're tired. And a hard drill, frankly, in our room was harder than wrestling. Because kids can take a, you know, you get a kid, you get a kid like Isaiah White, who's so strong that he can slow anybody down. He can go wrestle the Olympic champion right now, and he will slow the match down to molasses picks because his hands are the size. I mean, they're twice my size, and he's freakishly strong. So, but if you're making him drill hard, that's a different story. So we didn't run sprints. You know, we did once in a while, but we drilled hard. That's what we did. So there's technique drilling, there's that. And then in live wrestling, we were super intense. We didn't do a ton of live because I feel like quality was always better than quantity. The things that you and you I the probably feel that you needed out of your hard drilling. Yes, and you feel from that, and it's low risk injury. And I'd rather I'd rather wrestle in positions. You know, I'd rather I'd rather like make the force the kids this this like forty minute go take two break stuff that we did in college is baloney. All it taught me was how to not wrestle hard. Don't move your feet. Don't get too tired. I wasn't tough enough to wrestle hard for forty minutes. If you would have given me six one minute goes right, fifteen seconds, you know, and I trained that way, I would have been much better off. 
So that was my thing with these great athletes. I don't know what Cal's doing, but I suspect it's not every day. Take two Russell an hour, take two breaks. You know, they're probably doing real things. it's a lot like what you just mentioned. Yeah. Yes. So then we did spar as well. And that's play wrestling, right? So get in here, spar hard. And the rules of sparring are high man wins. Get an ankle, keep an ankle till you hear two, right? And the last guy moving usually wins. If all the other things are equal, the last guy moving wins the scramble. So I don't want care if you win, but you've got to apply these principles. And so everything we did had principles, had rhyme and reason. All the coaches were on board. And so Jordan Burroughs came in to, re- to recruit Isaiah White. Now they were going extra hard because Jordan Burroughs was there, right? But I told him, like, Burroughs is here. This is the hardest workout of the year. Let's show this guy what we're made of. Nobody ever sat during live wrestling. I learned that from Bill Wick, who's an NCAA champ, and, and you know, Coach Joe Williams, TJ Williams, T- Tony Davis at, at Mount Carmel. He didn't let you sit during live wrestling because sitting's lazy. You know, so I don't care if you're a dad. Dads are welcome in our room. If you were 350-pound dad, you were standing for half an hour for a wrestling live for half an hour. So there's there's a lot of that stuff that just the little things, and then the coaches holding themselves accountable to hold other coaches accountable, and then to hold the kids accountable every single day about all the details creates an intensity in your room that develops, you know, incredible conditioning, incredible toughness, right? Kids can wrestle through positions and there's a culture in the room. You know, we, we reinforced it. I was, one of the things I did was life lessons at the end of almost every practice, you know, and we sat down and we talked and we talked about grades. We talked about how we treated women and we talked about all the other stuff. But one of the things we've, we, particularly at the end of the year, one of the things we talked a lot about was we do, we don't, we're not better than anybody, but we do things better than everybody. You're better, you're more prepared. You, you know, we won a lot of matches that we weren't supposed to win in, in the postseason because our kids believed they were walking in the, into the state tournament better prepared. We also lost some, you know, but I think we won a lot, you know, probably five to one on that count. And, and, a lot of that was just belief. Like we knew, you know, we're doing things harder than everybody else. We know we're doing the details. You know, you're going to, these other guys might be cutting corners. We're doing everything right. We're dotting every eye cross and every T you're ready. And so we felt that the coaches believe that the kids believe that that's a great room culture and you can't devalue that. That's amazing. I'm actually thinking that, that maybe we don't get to fundraising in this podcast and we have you on for another one to, to focus on fundraising. Cause I'm already thinking of the value of this, you know, just in the ability to share it with so many high school coach friends, or even to give it to some of the high school wrestlers that I'm working with that will allow it to share, share it with their coaches. You know, I, I think even in, in Northern New Jersey right now, one thing that we see is a lot of coaches, you know, are running practices in a way that is just what they knew. Right. I think what obviously made you guys exceptional then was that you were constantly studying from the best and figuring out how to make it better. And, you know, recently I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about a math program and the math program was ranked number one in the country. When the guys started out, they were 14th in their league out of 14. And, uh, you know, they won multiple national championships, I think nine out of 10. And a lot of the components that you're discussing were a lot of the same things that he had built within the culture. Kids teaching kids, kids holding each other accountable. Situations where there wasn't a coach even present, it was the kids that were working on things on their own, helping each other, instructing, you know, just to get to the point where they're excelling. But the thing that really stood out about what you said, what he said, is he was constantly going to these other programs that were set up kind of like mentors and studying what they were doing and going back and figuring out, journaling, writing notes, and truly being deliberate about how he could improve on their process so that his program could beat their program. And I think what you're seeing there is 
That's competitiveness, Mike. But at the same time, it's a lifelong learner, right? It's called being good at winning, right? So being good at being good at things is why people excel. If you combine that with grit, you have to be able to decipher a situation and say, there's value there. We can do better here. I don't like that because I don't think that's going to work in my culture. So you're constantly looking at things with a super critical eye. And I'm an eight-year-old now. But I said, if I'm doing a good job as a father, you'll be good at being good at things when you're older. And that's all I want. You're going to have to decide you want to work on your own. And I'll try to help foster that. But I want to teach you how to be critical enough and humble enough to say, I have this to learn. Those guys are better than me. Here's how we're going to get to them and pass them. But that's in business, right? And the great business leaders do that, right? The great nonprofit leaders, which is the world I'm in now. So I'm fi- trying to figure out what Philly's doing because I want to be better in Philly. I mean, those are our brothers and sisters, but I want to be better in Jim Mangum. So the growth mindset piece has got to be modeled by the coach if you want your kids to have it. Talking about it is really cheap. Model. The talk about it is just to make them aware. But if you want to ingrain them in it, you got to live that life. We're learning that, you know, I can't tell you how many times I took a kid, a couple kids, three, four kids into the weight room, after the weight room, into the room to play with the new technique. I saw a Russian do it. You know, this, we developed Ellis Coleman and Greedy Coleman's whole system of wrestling. We developed this very unique system that where we two-on-one to a leg lace to a Merkel. We did all these things that were very unique at the time and we found kids that had similar law, you know, long and their, their legs are strong and, you know, and we would, we would filter them into this, but it was from hours of playing with it in the wrestling room. And so everything from that to fundraising, okay, this doesn't work. And it's just constantly looking with a critical eye, I think is, is key. But some of that is, I think the word constant is, is a real thing in coaching. What do you and mean? I, well, I got to the point where I'm like, okay, I have kids. I coach when I didn't have kids. If a guy has got three kids at home, is he really going to put in the time I put in? No, and he probably should. He should probably spend more time with his kids. So that guy has got to be a better administrator than I was. He's got to be a better delegator than I was because maybe he's not in the room every day or he doesn't have the time to spend in the offseason or whatever it is. So he's got to find some young bucks to do it if he really wants to be good. But it is a real – it is being good in a, in a high school sport, particularly a sport like wrestling, is – it's serious hours. It's serious commitment. I don't know anybody on the Chicago Bears football team other than Justin Fields. All I do is beat the streets and be with my family. My guys, I grew up with a group of eight guys where like, we would die for each other. These are my brothers since most of them since kindergarten. And I at one out of every 10 of their social events. You know, So I, the, the way I chose to live my life, I almost feel bad about not giving enough time to beat the streets now because I, they're just things I won't do. You know, so I understand those coaches too, but there are guys that were more organized and better delegators and better at building a real organization that can have similar success. I think, I don't know, but I, I suspect I'm learning a ton in the business world in the non you know, in that I could have done things a lot differently as a coach to be more efficient. Do you want to share a little bit about that or do you want to come on another time to discuss some more of the nonprofit work? If, if, the, if the audience here is, is coaches, I don't think it's worth the time. You know, I will say this, if there's a way to, to help your local beat the streets, you know, there's 10, our goal is 28 by 28, 2028. We're probably going to add four in the next year. If there's a way to invest in that, you guys' work is very real. It is, it's an amazing organization. It fills my cup and gives me meaning every day. And it's really great. If I could tell a story, we have a young person who identifies as male, has lived a very, very traumatic life, lives in a home for abused and neglected children. 
who never had a place to belong. And he has now found his spot. We were just talking about this the other day, just won the city championship, wrestles as a girl, no, no hormones. He's biologically a, a girl. We also got the second highest ACT score in the school. And we're going to send him to, to Emma Randall at Columbia. I mean, this dude is going to, he's going to, he's going to place in state this year. There are those stories everywhere. There's 50 stories like that happening in Beeple Street, Chicago right now. And there's 50 stories like that happening in Philly, New York, LA, the New England, the big ones. There's 20 happening in the other ones. That doesn't include the other 3,000 kids we serve, you know? So there's a lot there, but if there's a way for guys to get involved, to be supportive, do a shoe drive, do a small fundraiser, whatever it is, It'd be great for the wrestling community to embrace Beaton Streets in a way that I think would be very healthy. And for the record, if you care about the growth of our sport, that's all we ever hear about, right? How do we grow the sport? The answer is we grow the sport with organizations like Beat the Streets in urban areas where 80% of our country's population exists, where we need it more than Chicago public schools is a hot mess. Chicago is a hot mess. Chicago needs this. Our 3,000 kids need this. The 10,000 we hope to serve in five years, they need this. So if the wrestling community can really come together, it's, there's there. And we're up against a lot right now. RTC money, NIL money, well, that's wrestling money. And a lot of it's getting siphoned to the top. There's a lot of money going into David Taylor. And I think that's, I'm happy for David Taylor. And I love seeing him beat Yazdani, you know, but I can promise you that the NIL money that is being spent on colleges right now, if it was spent in the inner cities, would save a lot of lives. And so that's something we are up against. And so it's harder to do what we're doing now than it was five years ago. And it's going to be harder five years from now. So the more the, the wrestling community can support us, the better. And that's becoming harder because that money's going directly to college athletes and in, in for likeness. Yeah. It's much easier for Tom Ryan to call the Milwaukee tools guy than it is Mike Powell. Right. So you take the $50 million they put into their wrestling complex, you could start 25 beat the street for that money and fund them for the first five years. And so I don't think that's a bad thing, but I do think we need to change the perspective and the narrative. Everybody wants to see Iowa kick butt and we're really excited about their new wrestling. But do you care about the health of the sport? Do you care about America's youth? Because there's a marriage there, you know, and, and so you can do both, right? Both can happen. Well, I just would like us to have a little bigger piece of the pie. And more importantly, just to be a bigger part of the narrative. You know, we're not, you know, flow doesn't give us any love. So I was going to ask, what's the and, next step to be able to make you guys? Some of that's on us. We need to build those relationships. We're busy building our organization. I'm hiring four people in the next six months. So I would love to have flow in our, and do, but like, you know, is, is, are we, defense soap is being supported. You know, ASICS has been amazing to people's streets. This light's been amazing. So there's, there's plenty of it that's happening. I think we're just scratching the surface and it can get it can get much better. And on the local level, some of that is just maybe, hey, man, let's collect 20 pairs of shoes and send them to Cleveland. We just bought Chris Lindsay at Gear to Compete. Every single wrestling coach should buy all of their wrestling gear from Gear to Compete. He has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to beat the streets efforts. He's an amazing, incredibly generous man. Gear to Compete just sold us shoes at cost. We're going to give them away. So you're talking about four or $5,000 worth of shoes to start 500 kids in a league we're about to start called school, right? 400 to 500 kids. But if the local clubs in, in Illinois got together and sent us a bunch of used shoes, that saves us two, three, four thousand $4,000. You know, so 
that's a big that's a big thing. So there's a lot there. Knee pads, headgear, you know, and and or time. If you're a high level guy in in Cleveland, Ohio, and you're running St. Ed's room, and you said, "Beat the streets," can I come to a clinic for you? I heard you put Beat the streets. Cleveland's going to have a new facility soon. It's going to be awesome. Can I come run a clinic for you? Let's advertise it. You guys keep the dough, and I want to do that. Stephen Mitchell just did that for us. Joe Rowley's going to do that for us. Spencer Mangle's doing that for us. So it's happening. It's happening. And it's and they're incredibly generous people because I know what Stephen gets for us clinic per day. You know, but there's that. You know, Jaden Cox has been incredible, right? But I hear it's $15,000 to get Kyle Snyder in the room right now. What if Kyle Snyder said, hey, I'm going to do this. You know, we're going to bring a thousand kids in. I'm going to bring my teammates in and I'm going to do this. And we're going to run a fundraiser. It's going to, and it's going to benefit Baltimore beat the streets, which is what he's closest to, or DC, right? And, and that'd be amazing. Get Helen over there. And so the rest of the community can do that. The, the local chapters can do that. The parents can do that. And definitely the high-end people who have capacity can do that. So. Love it, Mike. You got me fired up. I'm going to go and put a box in my club right now and start collecting shoes. Look for it in a couple of weeks. Awesome. You're for real, dude. You got me fired up. So, hey, everyone, I, I just want to thank Mike for his time on the podcast today. Always exceptional to talk to. Don't get enough time with Mike. Anything you want to leave everybody with, Mike? I'm really grateful for uh, being on and I'm grateful for the work people are putting in and our great sport. Let's keep, let's keep helping kids change their lives, build themselves. Awesome. And Jeff, thank you. Great to connect with you. It's been too long. And that is the business of wrestling brought to you by Wrestling IQ, software and systems to help you grow your wrestling team. Hopefully this podcast has been helpful to build the sport in your community. And thanks to our innovative guests for sharing their insights and learnings. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It goes a long way in helping us bring you more top-notch content and innovative guests. Remember, the world of wrestling isn't just about what happens on the mat. It's about the coaches who shape the future, the entrepreneurs who build the foundations, and the passion that drives it all. If you have any questions, suggestions, or want to connect, you can find us on social media. You can also learn more about building wrestling in your community by going to our website and Googling Wrestling IQ Academy. Until next time, keep your head up, your stance low, and keep pursuing excellence. Thanks for learning.